0: All right, the Evan Bray Show, the Round Table of Justice. Every Monday, ten o'clock, is the opportunity for us to dig into justice, crime, community safety issues on the Round table of Justice. And although I haven't been doing this show that long, it's been just over two months. I think I can officially say Tamara Cherry is becoming a regular guest. This is the third time, Tamara, yes, I've had you join me on the show.
1: I know. I was just remarking off air, Evan, that I feel like I'm seeing you more than I'm seeing my husband these days. <laughs> well, and we share a home office. Well, thanks. So it says something. <laughs> I
0: appreciate you uh, joining me in studio today. Tamara, born and raised in Saskatchewan, but an award-winning journalist, the bulk of your career in Toronto. You were at the Toronto Star, Toronto Sun, and CTV News Toronto. In fact, I've seen news clips of you pregnant. So while you were having your family, yes. uh, you were still out there on the crime beat in yep. Toronto, yep. which is uh, if you're going to be on a crime beat somewhere, it's probably the place to be. You've also done lots of uh, trauma research. You're an author. You're a podcast host. Uh, your, your book, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. I was just saying to you off air, I was leafing through that this weekend. So I, I'd like to, I'd like to talk a little bit before we get into James Smith Cree Nation, um, the world junior players being charged with sexual assault. We've got a few things on the topic today. Let's just talk a little bit about what led you to move from being a reporter investigating crime and crime stories and telling those stories to the journey where you're at today.
1: Um, well, I'll start out by saying that when I, when I was beginning my, my, the part of my career that brought me to CTV, um, if you would have asked me then, and many people did what, what's next, Right, I would have said nothing. I've got the best job in the world. I'm going to retire in this post just as my predecessor, Jim Junkin had done before me. Um, but then as you just mentioned, I was pregnant a few times, uh, while I was at CTV and it got to the point after my third child was born that it's like I wanted to be home for dinner with my kids. So I, the next step was how do I do that? Because I wasn't getting home from that job until 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, many nights. Um, and so I, I started thinking about it. a lot of journalists go into public relations. That's their next chapter. And I just couldn't wrap my head around a regular PR gig. And it was actually a conversation with a Toronto Police Homicide Investigator outside police headquarters there one day um, and I was having this conversation with him and telling him exactly that. And he said, well, what about doing PR for the victims? And this light bulb went off my head mm-hmm. like ding. And 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 we were talking about it and and talking about the the real gap in services that exists for victims and survivors of traumatic events. Whereas as a reporter in Toronto, somebody who had just experienced like the most traumatic episode of their life. Hours later, I would be there knocking at their door. They wouldn't have anyone there supporting them. Chances are they had not had any experience with the media before. They would talk to me through their tears. I would leave, and then uh, somebody from another outlet would come, and then another, and another. And this is one of the most competitive news outlet news environments in North America, remember. So there's a lot of journalists going past their doors. So I left CTV in late 2019, And launched my company, Pickup Communications, which was meant as uh, um, an agency to fill that gap in victim services. And I began pitching my services to police services, saying, and I think that I had a meeting with you, you, Evan, when you were chief of Regina Police, saying, hire me as a consultant to support your trauma survivors in, in the immediate aftermath of these traumatic events. Well, lo and behold, the pandemic happened, so my calendar went from chock full with all these police, different police agencies to like nothing. Priorities had changed, obviously. So I shifted momentarily and did something that an academic friend of mine had been encouraging me to do, which was launch a research project aimed at, um, you know, examining the impact of the media on trauma survivors. And basically what my intention was, was to have a piece of work that was driven by the voices of survivors that said, look, this service is needed. I had no idea, though, what uh, a transformational journey it would bring me on in terms of showing me how many of the things that I did, just as part of the very um facts gathering and storytelling process, were actually very harmful for the survivors that I was reporting on, who I really cared about, who I really wanted to, you know, affect change in the system for. Um, and not only that, but how harmful the very process was on journalists. So mm-hmm. my research expanded to include stories of survivors of homicides, traffic fatality, sexual violence, mass violence, and the impact of trauma on journalists who cover these events and That led to that book that you mentioned, right. and I still do a lot of work uh, with and for trauma survivors as well as agencies like law enforcement and nonprofits that support survivors.
0: Tamara Cherry is my guest this morning who went from crime reporter in Toronto to author, researcher, um, and owner of Pickup Communications. And I watched, uh, you did an interview on The Social, I believe it was, yep. where you talked about where the name came from. I found that very interesting. Uh, I, I'm not an inside media reporter, and so I didn't even know the term pickup and the significance that it had. But talk about why you call your company Pickup Communications and right. and really that what you're trying to do Especially in trying to help newsrooms and other journalists in Canada see it through the lens that you are.
1: So uh, coming up as a journalist, for me, a pickup referred to that act of getting a picture of the latest homicide victim, traffic fatality victim, whatever the latest tragedy of the city was, and hopefully an interview with their family. So it was not uncommon for me to hear Tamara, we need a a pickup from last night's homicide or Tamara, where's the pickup of the child who was killed yesterday struck by the vehicle or Tamara, um, global news got the pickup of that homicide, but you said the family wasn't talking. What happened? So that, that is where pickup communications comes from Mm -hmm. in, in the UK. I do a lot of work talking to journalists in the UK. They refer to it as the death knock. Um, ultimately it is. What many journalists, most journalists, I would say, refer to as the worst part of their job is, you know, going and knocking on that door in, in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event or calling through the phone book. I'm dating myself now, um, searching social media, sure. sending those messages. And so pickup communications is meant to fill that gap in services. And I often will act as that barrier between journalists and the homicide survivor quite often. Um, so that, you know, I can facilitate more trauma-informed storytelling practices. And as part of that work, as you just alluded to, Evan, I do a lot of training for journalists. I do a lot of training for victim service providers, uh, people in law enforcement, to try to show people how they can facilitate a trauma-informed experience and therefore hopefully create something that is more beneficial for both the survivor the journalist and of course like the public at large. And and yeah. t- there's an argument to be made for the investigation as well.
0: To Mary Cherry is my guest. You know, as as I listen to you talk about that those conversations with loved ones who have just tragically lost someone in their life, I think back to what I'm going to guess was hundreds of notifications that I did in my career as a sergeant. So with the Regina Police Service, typically they will have a sergeant or, or someone who's in a supervisor capacity do the knock on a door in the middle of the night uh, to do a notification of next of kin. And And sometimes there's an expectation that we gather a bit of information. So we're not only letting them know that they've just tragically lost their loved one. It could be in a fatal car accident, Mm -hmm. could be in a stabbing. It could be in a, in a variety of things, but there's some essential pieces to the investigation that the sooner we get them, the sooner we're able to, you know, including understanding who they might've been with that night, Mm -hmm. those types of things. So, As you're talking, I'm thinking about it from my angle, which is, I think, why you see that kind of uh, congruence between journalism and policing, because you are interacting at the most vulnerable time for a person, and the words that you can say, I'm saying this just to kind of illustrate the point. I don't think I ever received more thank you cards from people than I did on notifications I did when they lost a loved one. Mm. And it, it shows you that seizing a car or finding a stolen car doesn't have the impact that you can when you're talking to someone in the worst time of their life. Yes. How you talk to them, the things you say, sometimes just the time you spend, the yes. patience you have, the understanding you give, yes. those things to me are essential and and so It's kind of the light bulb was going on literally as you were talking to Mara about how these two jobs really do interact very similarly with people.
1: And in very unfortunate ways, sometimes like um, the first chapter of my book is actually about a Toronto police officer who is murdered in the line of duty. And she actually found out about her husband's homicide through the media, watching it, literally watching it unfold Mm. live on TV, listening to it on the radio, there was a senior Toronto police officer parked down the street. This is in the late 90s. They've changed the way they do things now, thankfully. There's a senior Toronto police officer parked down the street throughout this, as she's watching this, as her mother is calling her and telling her that uh, she recognizes her husband's shoes as he's being wheeled into Sunnybrook Hospital. And it wasn't until after she basically had this confirmation, couldn't get a hold of anybody at the station, at the hospital, anything, that the police she finally arrived at her door and confirmed what she already knew. I've had the unfortunate experience on a few occasions of inadvertently notifying somebody that their loved one was murdered. You're the person to be doing that right. notification Evan. Right. You with your your training, specific training for death notifications, I'm not. So that's part of the problem. But you know what you're saying right now like I I there's a number of investigators who I've kept in touch with over the years and 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 I really some of them I I call friends to this day. And we have bonded over that, you know, care, the, the weight that journalists feel quite often to get it right for that survivor. is quite often the same as the weight of, that an investigator right. carries. Right. So um, they are very similar jobs in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I wish that more police services could see that so that we could take down those barriers and have more conversation between journalists and investigators or victim service providers and journalists so that when tragedy strikes there is a number that journalists can call to say does this family want to Mm -hmm. talk um if so what do you think the timeline is or isn't is a statement going to be coming out and there can be that go between because as it stands um and i'm just in in the process right now of recording the second season of the trauma beat podcast and it's a bunch of conversations with journalists from across north america there usually isn't a number for people to call, and that's right. where there's, there's problems that can come.
0: Okay. Well, what I'd suggest here, Tamara, we've got a few things that I want to talk about. I think we're, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, you mentioned, you know, the, the role of, of a journalist and, and the, the, you know, experiences that you've had, and you mentioned mass casualties. So yeah. we're going to start off with James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, we've seen that unfolding a lot here recently. We're going to talk about the hockey players charged with sexual assault. Yeah. We're going to talk about a couple of recent MLA charges of criminal uh charges that have happened in the province. We've got a few things to get to. It is the Roundtable of Justice, and my guest today, Tamara Cherry, we'll be right back on 980-CJME and 650-CKOM. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. Tamara Cherry is My guest, former journalist, crime reporter from the Toronto area, and now an author, trauma researcher, podcast host, and owner and founder of Pickup Communications. I'm curious, Tamara, we're talking a lot over the last couple of weeks about James Smith Cree Nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The background that you have in terms of crime reporting, on that day, September the 4th, that Sunday, when that was going down, I was chief of police and I mean, I was drawn into it very quickly. And especially when we at one time thought he might've been in the city of Regina, what was going through your head when that was unfolding?
1: Immediately. My mind goes to how are the victims and survivors of this going to be protected from the media? Because I knew that media from across the country and perhaps even the United States would be descending on this tiny community and wanting interviews and feeling the pressure to get those interviews first, to gather as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, so as to, in their minds, tell as comprehensive of a story as possible. So that's immediately where my mind mm-hmm. went. I was also thinking about, um, the Humboldt Broncos, um, because I had been, uh, I was writing my book, uh, which you referred to, and, um, one chapter in there focuses on the Humboldt Broncos crash and the media attention that was on that case and the harm that came to some survivors from that media attention, uh, not only when it took place in the immediate aftermath, but then also like when the news trucks went away a year later and the emptiness that some in the in the survivor community felt when they felt like people were moving on and not really caring about their loved ones anymore. So that is immediately where my mind goes um, and, and then of course, like immediately you go to speculation what might have been behind this. This was not a typical mass violence case. Like I've covered a few incidents of mass violence. Um, The last one that I covered when I was at CTV News was the Toronto van attack. And that was a case of a young man who was just trying to kill as many people as possible. And the question was, of course, with James Smith Cree Nation, is that what this is? And Mm -hmm. with all these reports of um, Sanderson moving around the province, um, the question, of course, is, well, are there other lives at risk? Like, will this rampage continue? But, um, yeah, immediately it went to the media.
0: You know, I, I think about, too, when we first were hearing of this crime, and it wasn't long after that I was over at F Division sitting with Rhonda Blackmore in their command center, talking about, you know, the efforts that we're going to go into trying to locate this guy. But we spent a lot of time talking about the nature of how he killed people Mm -hmm. because someone opening up fire at an event with a gun is a lot different crime from a person with a knife stabbing and slashing. Yes, it's very, very different. And so even that, you know, when you think about the psychology that goes into this and what the person's intent are, um, in some cases, you know, it may be, lessened fear in that this was going to be just a random thing, for example yes. the the rider game was on that day
1: that's right the labor day yeah. classic,
0: and we were getting calls. Should we be shutting down this yes. game and so you know but the, in the
1: public we didn't know no, the method of
0: that's right yelling, that's right? right and and part of the the decision making isn't necessarily around what you think's going to happen, but analyzing what hasn't happened. And so a gun wasn't something that we knew had played, played into this. So, you know, understanding kind of the nature of the crime is, is super important, but it helps give us an understanding of the relationship with the victims too.
1: For sure. I mean, I've, I've covered a, a plethora of court cases, um, where it's been a stabbing homicide and, Nine times out of 10, there is a real personal element to it, whether it's intimate partner violence or um, or it's just a crime of opportunity where there happens to be a knife available. Um, but there are very few incidents of mass violence that involve knives, um, even though some people say, statistically speaking, that you can. Anyway, I'm I'm not even going to go down that road. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to point out, though, about the media aspect of what happened that day. And in the days that followed, I was very happy to see in the days that followed that the leadership of James Smith Cree Nation was really mindful of keeping the media away Mm -hmm. and off the First Nation. And um, like that for me was very novel because usually and I've I've worked with a lot of survivors of mass violence in the United States The media just descends and is just knocking on doors, everything like that. They had a real opportunity there to just like close off things to the media. I also remember hearing from a journalist in Regina or somewhere in Saskatchewan at the time who reached out to me because of the work that I was doing to say, like, what do we do? They want us to stay away. But there are journalists, I think it was an American journalist, somebody said, had like snuck on to the reserve and posed as a pizza delivery person or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it that just adds like another interesting dimension, but just a huge shout out to the leadership there who I thought from as an outsider did an excellent job of managing the media.
0: Tamara Cherry is my guest. We're going to take another break. I want to talk a little bit more about the recommendations when we come back and then we'll get into some of the other stories when it comes to justice, law and order, community safety. It's the Roundtable of Justice on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Every Monday, 10 o'clock, the Roundtable of Justice, where we bring in experts somehow worked in the field of justice, law enforcement, crime reporting. And that's today's guest. Tamara Cherry is my guest. Crime reporter did the bulk of her career in Toronto with the Toronto Star, Toronto Sun and CTV News in Toronto. And now has her own business, owner and founder of Pickup Communications, some consulting work, trauma researcher, and my guest, the first I'm going to call regular guest on the round table. <laughs> I think it's the third time you've joined me. So yes. I appreciate you being here. So back to the uh, James Smith Cree Nation recommendations that came from that inquest. In my view, there's some low hanging fruit that would be fairly easy to implement. Things like even as simple as clear street signs on the First Nation and house numbers to make it mm-hmm. easy when you're attending. And I, I can tell you from a an emergency responder Uh, we used to advocate that back alleys would have house numbers on them because sometimes depending on if you're going to a call where you're not necessarily wanting to walk up to the front door, Mm -hmm. you have to know the address that you're going to. Uh, With GPS, maybe that's getting a little bit easier. But those things are easy to do. Some of the recommendations, though, Tamara, are what I would call systemic changes that have to happen. And do we think that from a federal level, even though this inquest one of the largest our country has seen, will it get the momentum that it needs to make the change
1: oh it's It's really tough to say, Evan, I really hope so um but we've seen many, many reports for many inquests over the years sit on the shelf and collect dust right. until a similar event happens. And then they reference that previous report and then on and on and on until finally they say, we've had enough reports sitting on the shelf. You know, we want this one to actually make change. So I hope that this one does. But it's interesting. I had a conversation last week with a woman named Andrea Montero. She used to be um, the director of, of corrections in Yukon. And she's a real thought leader in where we should be going with corrections. She she does her own consulting now in the corrections world. And what she was sort of saying to me, because she, she had read through these recommendations, she sort of said, you know, corrections, it seems like everything worked on the inside. He was doing well. And the problem is where you drop the ball in carrying on those servers services once they get on the outside. And I said, well, what does it look like across the country? And she said... It really, it's sort of like piecemeal, like some people are doing a good job, some people aren't. The problem is with these fundamental things in the systemic changes needed, it far too often is the exception and not the expectation of how things should be done. So what we're talking about in terms of offenders being uh, cared for, for lack of a better term, in the community once they're released to ensure that the broader community is cared for that is something that it, it, we need to see systemic change right across the country when it comes to that, um, because far too often it is just it's the parole officer that's just checking in on them or making sure that they're abiding by their 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 uh, conditions. But where are the supports for that person and for the community to bring them back into the community? And and as somebody said, I think one of your callers earlier in the show said to empower people to see something, say something, as they yeah. say in Crime Stoppers, right? To for everybody to sort of take this on as, um, you know, as as th- their own goals. Um, it really is a community thing, and I'm I'm not talking about James S- Smith Cree Nation, but I'm saying society as a whole. Um, how can we all come together and take better care? And then the other thing that she said that was really interesting was that the hope that through these recommendations and through this inquest. The, it'll spark conversations about, and I think she would have liked to have seen this more in the recommendations, is why is there such an overrepresentation of Indigenous people in corrections to begin with? And I think if we spent more time looking at that, then so many other more positive things would follow in terms of, you know, how we take care of people before they get to the point of committing offenses. Right. And then after and throughout, like there's there's so much systemic change that needs to come Um, that we've learned needs to come from uh, an inquest from that like this. And I just I really hope that the conversation continues. Does it have the momentum? Let's see. Let's see what politicians do with it. I have not heard this talked about a lot on like national morning shows and, and stuff like that. It's talked about a lot in Saskatchewan. It is in the national newscasts. But how do we Make that continue forward and make the country see it as not just something that happened in Saskatchewan but something that impacts us all
0: Tamara cherry is my guest the you know the reality is, and I had this conversation with Clive Wayhill this morning, Chief Coroner, is you know these recommendations speak specifically to James Smith. there's a number of other first yeah. nations, and yeah. let's not for a second think this is only limited to a first nation. Exactly. something like this could happen in small town Saskatchewan it could happen in Urban Toronto, exactly. at, at the end of the day, I think there are lessons learned anytime you have something like this. And it is the hope, you know, the, the other thing I'll say, Tamara, about your, your point, we had the caller that said, see something, say something. There's a whole host of supports that have to come with building a culture that people feel safe enough to come forward and feel that they will be protected and supported if Mm -hmm. they do. And and, And
1: empowered. Right. How do you empower your community?
0: For sure. And this isn't just talking about a relationship with police, which we know is at best... Uh, challenging relationship between First Nation communities and police. I think we're making steps to get it better and into a better spot, but there's a whole bunch of other things, even just shame within your own community. If you come forward and talk about your brother who has been making threats on Facebook, who has been dealing drugs, who has been assaulting his wife, all of those things happened and yet no one's coming forward and talking about it. So, Well,
1: Well, why would you feel empowered to do something if you've seen your loved one go through a certain system and they didn't necessarily get the supports they need. I'm not necessarily referring to James Smith Creen Nation, but as you said, any community in Canada could experience this. And I've seen it many times over the years in Toronto where people are like, well, why would I come forward? Like I reported the last shooting. Somebody knew that it was me and now I need to move out of my home or look, the shootings just keep happening and happening and happening. It's like, how do we affect systemic change so that people are empowered to come forward because they feel confident that the system will work for them.
0: Okay. Let's shift gears. I want to talk about five players charged from the 2018 world junior team with sexual assault. We are expecting to hear uh, shortly from the London police service, a news conference they've got planned. There's so many, so many avenues to talk about this, but, but, for me and again i look at it from a policing standpoint it's concerning to me that london police did an investigation concluded an investigation and then for for whatever reason and and sadly i'm thinking it was public pressure not new information coming to life or you know someone with took a sober second look at the investigation and said no there's some pieces missing here for whatever reason it was not only reopened, but it resulted the second time in charges being laid. Some concerns there, but there's so many missteps throughout this journey.
1: So many. Um, I mean, I I, I pity the officer in London who needs to step in front of the cameras today and answer some of the tough questions they're going to be getting because they've got the media of the country at their doorsteps right now. Um, Robin Doolittle will no doubt be one of the Reporters there. She's the Globe and Mail reporter who's done a phenomenal job, you know, breaking story after story on this on, on this whole saga, including, you know, the 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 registration fees like her and her team at the Globe and the registration fees from Hockey Canada going to paying off this woman in the in the lawsuit. But she's also the author of a Globe investigation from several years ago. Um, from 2017, in fact, uh, called that was called Unfounded. Right. And that that found that police dismissed one in five sexual assault claims as baseless. And one of the police services at the center of that investigation was the London Police Service. So you know they're going to be getting a lot of questions on exactly what you just said. Why weren't charges laid the first time? What changed between then and now? And you better believe that one of the things that changed was the Globe and Mail's reporting that that interviewed witnesses that had never been interviewed by police, that uncovered uh, potential evidence that had never been um apparently reviewed by police before. So those those are some of the questions for police that are going to be coming through. And then, of course, there's the questions for the NHL, for Hockey Canada. That's not going away. And I really hope that the NHL and Hockey Canada get get all their their messages in order, but not just about like spinning the message, Give us confidence that there's been systemic change because what we've witnessed from Gary Bettman over the weekend and this this continuation of it just feels like it's not really seen as a big deal there. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, whether there was a criminal act committed on that night or not, that will be for the courts to decide. There is clearly a culture problem in hockey that led to what happened that night. One of the things that was reported by Robin Doolittle and her colleagues over the last couple of years was the fact that there was one of the hockey players, like there was video evidence that was actually handed over to um, Robin and her colleagues by defense lawyers for these guys that showed, you know, the complainant in this saying, like on the night, presumably within the, the time frame of these alleged assaults, like, yes, yes, it's all fine, yes, I consent, something like that. Why did somebody feel the need to have a camera 100%. there and videotape that? Why
0: are you asking yeah. uh, someone who, number one, everyone has acknowledged was extremely intoxicated that night to make those statements yes. right after? I mean that that to me is telling. The the other thing, and you touched on this briefly, but I, you know, I think it needs to be stated even more uh, loudly that what we're hearing from Gary Bettman and from the NHL, in my opinion, is is doing a disservice to the NHL. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, it's shameful. We, we heard more exciting news about the Olympics this weekend, and it looked to me like distracting stories that were coming yes. out. Gary Bettman in the NHL had a real opportunity here. And uh, sadly, I've learned in my career of policing that every tragic situation gives you a great opportunity. Yes. It's up to you whether you take it. They not only did they not take it, yeah. but it it appears to me like this is a lift the rug, sweep sweep it For a little sure. further under if you can. Which
1: is which is what they did throughout. You know, like we know that this money was used to pay off this woman, and that there have been other lawsuits that have been settled through this through through um, hockey Canada registration fees. I, I was hosting a radio show in Toronto when all of this investigation through the Globe and Mail was coming out. And we were taking call after call from hockey parents who were so upset.
0: Of course. Like,
1: w- like clean the house. Like, fix this. Yes. We don't want our registration fees going this way. We don't want our kids going down this path. We don't want our sons, most often, because we haven't heard any allegations like this from, from women's hockey. Let's point that out and, and celebrate all of our female hockey players. We don't want our sons being raised to think that if you do something criminal— or if you do something that is really does not reflect well yeah. on yourself or your team or ho- the hockey franchise, it's OK. We'll take care of it. But they had been sending that message for years. They had created this culture. And if if there were sexual assaults that took place in this hotel room, absolutely. These these five men should be held to account for that but there are many more people there's a whole institution that needs to be held for ac- well, held to, to account for this culture
0: and that's and that's the point is you know we're not even passing judgment on let the court case roll out and it'll prove what it proves but you know if you're a hockey parent who pays money that some of those dues go to hockey canada yes. 100 dollars helps in terms of advocacy rink times referees oh yeah and hush money in sexual assault yes. cases it just Ridiculous. doesn't it doesn't even make sense we need to take another break we're running short on time but we got one more quick chat with Tamara Cherry when we come back on the Round Table of Justice here on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME The Round Table of Justice Join today at the Round Table of Justice with Tamara Cherry, crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications, author of The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news. And we've talked a bit about James Smith Green Nation this morning. We talked about the five players charged uh, from the world junior team with sexual assault. I want to talk about Ryan Domitor, the MLA who was charged with a prostitution offense. Tamara, I, you know, I, I feel like if he was planning to run again, We should have heard from him many times. We should have heard from him right after the charge, showing remorse, uh, commitment to making self-improvement, to, you know, maybe reaching out and and learning about the victimization of women in the sex trade. All of these things you would think you would hear from someone who's thinking of running again. We haven't heard any of it. Does that mean he's going to resign, in your mind?
1: Even if he's not thinking of running again, Evan, he was elected by people for X, Y, and Z reasons, whatever it was. I'm sure one of those reasons was not because he felt that he's entitled to go and purchase sex in the city. Um, I think he, 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 his constituents deserve an apology. This has been an embarrassment. Um, number two, is he going to run again? I, I think that he'd be a fool to run again, considering how deplorably he's handled this from a PR perspective and that he hasn't come out, as you've mentioned, on this occasion, this occasion or this occasion to say anything. But regardless, um, I agree with what I've heard you say many times on the station and that he's got to go. He's got to go. Um, it's not even a matter of saying like there's no other choice but for him to go. Of course, he he has a choice because the laws of the land dictate that he can stay in his job if he wants to. He can sit there as an independent, and let the people decide. But from a moral, go- moral and ethical standpoint, I think that this guy has has got to not only leave, but apologize and and show that he is taking time to actually reflect on what happened and to actually learn, because it was like two months ago that this charge was laid. Right? right. And now he's gone to this John school. And now it's like he's it's like he's learned everything there is to learn. And the charge has been stayed like, no, you've not learned everything there is to be learned. um You need to actually take some time to sit with us and move aside. And if you're not going to move aside by way of resignation, I would have loved for him to come in front of the cameras and say what I did was wrong. I'm now on a learning journey and as part of that journey I'm going to step aside. I'm taking a leave of absence to further explore this and I will um I'll come back, it, you know, when the time is right and uh, maybe that would be a resignation, maybe that would be uh, okay, I'm I'm better now, quote unquote time to get to work. But you know, um, Evan in my former life and in my current life, I've done a lot of work with human trafficking survivors, people who worked in the sex trade. And, um, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the guys that are going and doing this because the demand is, is definitely part of the problem when it comes to, um, exploitation of these women. Well, and just girls. like that,
0: An hour's gone. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Tamara, it's uh, been great having you in. Thanks for, for joining me. And I know we'll uh, look forward to having you as a panelist coming up in the next month, I'm guessing on the Roundtable of Justice. Happy
1: to join you again. Thanks, Evan.
0: Tamara Cherry was my guest today on the Roundtable of Justice. We're going to lighten things up a little bit and talk about some exciting hockey action happening later this week in Saskatoon. And uh, maybe this is just the start of great things to come. We've got Discover Saskatoon joining us next and what you can expect to see on Wednesday. You're listening to 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.